Coming up next, the booking reads Fahrenheit 451. The temperature that paper burns. Or actually, it's not the temperature that paper burns at all. It's some random number that the fireman gave to Ray Bradbury. Or at least so he said. Or so he said, yeah. I don't know what temperature it does burn at. <laughs> I don't know. Welcome to the booking, everybody. I'm just looking up the temperature at which paper kind of paper it is burns. Yeah. The temperature at which paper burns. That's what I'm putting into Google here. I see a bunch of Fahrenheit 451 references and no actual answers. Well, Google, you know how Google Google just gives you answers. It says 451 degrees Fahrenheit. Ignition temperature is the temperature at which something catches fire and burns. The ignition te- temperature of paper is 451 degrees Fahrenheit or 233 degrees Celsius, which would seem to be what Mr. Bradbury said. Um, But then we have an article here that says, does paper really burn at 451 degrees Fahrenheit? Fact checking the late Ray Bradbury. He just died when this article was written. Okay, it looks like basically the answer is complicated. Yeah, it depends on the kind of paper and the... So apparently, depending on where it is, it can be anywhere from the 440s to the low 450s. So it's basically right, but Bradbury went for the poetic direct 451, 451. very specific number. And correctly so, by the way, because I don't don't know if this book is remembered if he didn't choose that title. I mean, basically, it's a good title. He was right. Yeah, you can't call it Fahrenheit... 440 to 451. Yeah. Well, Joseph Heller Heller famously went back and forth on Catch-22. Was it going to be Catch-19? Was it going to be... And then he decided on Catch-22. And again, right decision, whether you like the book or not. Great decision, Catch-22. Hey, everybody. By the way, you're probably wondering who we are or not. Maybe you've listened to all 91 episodes of this thing or whatever we're on. I think this might be 90 or 91. Coming up on the hundo, guys. Figure out what to do. Yo. Got to do something special. Interview Cormac McCarthy or Stephen Milhouse or something. Yes. I don't know. Both at the same alive, time. Right? Yeah, we could. All do three that. of them at the same time. Yeah, we'll get them. Yeah. Round table. Let's do it. McCarthy, Ishiguru. They all probably listen, so. Yeah, Milhauser. Hey, guys. Yeah, if you guys are listening, just hit us up on the DMs or whatever. Yeah. And uh, hashtag. Hashtag us. Yeah. yeah. What would the hashtag be? <laughs> hashtag Bookening 100. Yeah. Yeah, Bookening 100. Bookening 100. You can do it, Cormac. Ishiguru. Ishi. Ishi. We'll call him Ishi. Yeah. All right, fellas, we still haven't introduced ourselves. I feel like I've fallen down on my job because that's my job is to introduce us. And that's because I'm Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host, agent provocateur, a thing I like to say. You know what else is a thing you like to say? What's that? A thing I like to say. Yeah, I like to point out in a meta textual kind of a way how I've decided to insert a new title for myself, Agent Provocateur. So, yeah, (laughs) I'm nothing if not a man that follows certain formulas until I get tired of them and adopt new formulas. It works for you, though. Yeah, it works for me. It works for me. I'm a great man. Yes, and a great man is hard to find. <laughs> exactly so. A good man is hard to find. Yeah, a great no, a man, man, let alone a great possible man. to find. Yeah, impossible. except he's right over there. Yeah. We found him. Yeah, and the misfit right over there. It's uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 Brandon, you're not the misfit. I think I might be. You're the grandmother. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> no, 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 you're not the grandmother. You're, you're the, the barbecue the... owner. <laughs> is there a barbecue owner? Oh, yeah. Been a while get some sandwiches. His belly shakes like a sack of wheat or something like that. Sack of flour. <laughs> sack of flour. Yeah. Well, I myself, Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host, agent provocateur. Brandon over there, he is the baller. Nope. The nope. scholar. 
who's a baller of reading. That's me. He's wearing a plaid shirt. What, is, what would we consider that to be plaid? It's kind of a checkered shirt. It's striped. Striped. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, you call it a window pane. Window pane. Lots of window panes. Yes. And there's Brandon. He's got the chiseled jaw, the black sweeping hair. He's a man. His wife thinks he's handsome. My wife does. Yep. Anna Chastine, your thoughts? Hashtag. Hashtag. Booking Hundo. Hundo. He's not. Yeah. And a man that Mrs. Menzel finds to be even more attractive. The pastor who's a master, in fact. Jacob Menzel, right over there. He's wearing a dotted uh, shirt. Yeah. Dot print. Dot print shirt. Yeah. Dot print shirt. It's like a pointillist painting. (laughs) Pointillist painting. (laughs) Yes. Dot print. Baby dot print. Uh, yeah, it's it's Pastor Jacob Menzel. He's a uh, he's he's wearing the black or the brown boots, the jeans with the cuffs rolled up. Signature look for him, I think. Is that a signature look? Yeah, kind of yeah, a signature look. He's got the sleeves rolled up so you can see his arms. He's been working out every day, doing oh, yeah. his favorite exercise, the curl. He <laughs> likes to do the curl. Um, the worst exercise ever. Now, that's like an inside joke, folks. You wouldn't get it because you're not around when we talk about exercise. But you could go listen to our episode of Sound of Sanity on exercise. Yeah, you should listen to the one on uh, male male Strength. men. Yeah, yeah. The Stronger Sex, it's called, with the question mark. It's a good episode. And me, folks, you're probably, you know, no one ever describes what I'm wearing. Jake, why don't you tell the people what i'm wearing you are wearing a blue button down blue button it's down. got a little bit of a sateen it's got a little sh- it, it's a set it's got got a sheen to it it's got some, some texture some yeah. very subtle striping going on you got the khakis mm-hmm. Where's stylish stylish glasses mm-hmm. I think. stylish right. stylish glasses too stylish look at that what's that today my son jack glasses huh hey yeah. man oh and Apparently, my daughter Alyssa is going to have to get glasses too. Well, they get headaches when they read, and this is why because their eyes are slightly well, strained. They're, they're strained. short-sighted. Yeah, and guess what? I get headaches often after I read, so I think they might have gotten the genetic malfunction from me. Do you wear some which means that I probably should be wearing thing? glasses. No, I've always prided myself on my vision, so I might actually need glasses. When it comes to mental acuity, Brandon, you have your vision sees. Yeah, just think how much more I could have read. Yeah, if I'd only worn glasses. Yep, maybe you would have liked Ready Player One. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe you, you just couldn't understand rose-colored glasses. Is that <laughs> what we're talking about? Oh, <laughs> boom! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> you got him. All right, guys, let's do some donor shoutouts. Brandon, shout out Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Jake, shout out Andrew and Esther and little baby Andrew Timothy. And the lovebirds and little baby plus Timothy. their baby. Brandon, shout out the inscrutable. Inscrutable Jenny Z. And of course, our favorite Jake, Robert and Rhonda, Robert the, and lovers. Rhonda the Lovers. And John and Jill and Little Baby John Max. and Jill and Little Baby Max. The Lovebirds. The lovebirds plus Baby plus Max. Baby Max. And Jake, Yo. do you find great literature to be transporting? Indeed, I do. Now, uh, that's why I use David's Mighty Men for all my transportation needs. <laughs> Beat you to the punch. I like David's Mighty Men Transport because they support great podcasts like The Booketing. And, yeah, they're good for transportation. Hey, Brandon. Hey. My beloved mother, Beth, needs a shout-out. Your beloved mother, Beth, needs a shout-out. So do it. There it goes. Hey, Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. What about... Jane Katie the Lovebirds. Jane Katie oh, the Lovebirds or yes. Cold Love Cheese. Yes. He gotcha. <laughs> and, of course, our good friend, Maya. Maya! 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 And uh, Benny and Danity. Benny and Danity. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. And, of course, Professor 
and Mrs. X. Professor and Mrs. X. The lovebirds. The lovebirds. Hey, guys, let's talk about You think Fahrenheit. they like cheese? Yeah, they probably love cheese. You think they're cold? Uh, <laughs> it's Indiana Spring. They probably were. <laughs> yeah, hey, that's guys. right, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> but not if they burn books. Oh, uh, not if they burn books. Then they that's would be what hot. I do. Brandon likes to burn Fahrenheit 451. I did at one point. Did you do? No, I never burnt it. Oh, you know what I think? What? It's, it's a pleasure to burn. I do too. Actually, I like to barbecue. Yeah. So I like to burn things. Brandon Chastain is a great barbecue <laughs> artist, my friends. Hey guys, listen to this. Montag falling flat, going down. Saw or felt or imagined he saw or felt the walls go dark in Millie's face. Heard her screaming because in the millionth part of time left, she saw her own face reflected there in a mirror instead of a crystal ball. And it was such a wildly empty face all by itself in the room, touching nothing, starved and eating of itself that at last she recognized it as her own and looked quickly up at the ceiling as it and the entire structure of the hotel blasted down upon her, (laughs) carrying her with a million pounds of brick, metal, plaster, and wood to meet other people in the hives below, all on their quick way down to the cellar, where the explosion rid itself of them in its own unreasonable way. Nice. That's a pretty sweet sentence, I thought. That's a great sentence. What page is that on? That is on page 152. Yeah, and that summarizes the entire difference between the quality of this book and the quality of one Ready Player One. Oh, really? Okay. Go on. Go on. As you were reading that sentence to me, I was thinking when the trailer structure exploded, wouldn't it have been nice to have had a sentence of this vitality instead of what we got? Yeah. Hundo P. Yeah. In many ways, this has a lot of the issues that Ready Player One had, I guess, just to jump right in. Yeah, sure. Yeah, jump right in. But the quality of the literature is different. Well, at the very least, I think we can say someone is trying. Someone is trying. In yes. this book. As someone might have argued. <laughs> Who argued right? what? Oh, that, uh, yeah. You want someone to strive towards greatness, yeah. even if they fail. Now, did he achieve <laughs> greatness, though? That is the question. I think he did in that sentence. That sentence has always stuck yeah, with me. It's a 12 I've always, line sentence. I've always loved that sentence. That is an example of someone taking a risk and succeeding. It's a great sentence, great ending for a memorable <laughs> little character, cartoon character. I don't know if she's a well drawn character or not, but not really. Not really. But in terms of what he's doing with her, that's a great ending. She's sitting there watching in her imaginary world, feeding on the 3D television or whatever it is that they have in this universe and then suddenly it goes out and she's just staring into the blackness seeing her own face and seeing the emptiness and that's in the millionth part of a second before the whole building collapses on her that sentence i think is really really cool so that's definitely my favorite part of fahrenheit 451 a great sentence worth reading all the way to page 152 for in my humble opinion i think it's a good opinion (laughs) (laughs) and humble Well, guys, we might as well get to, oh, my goodness, the planes are going over. Just like in Fahrenheit 451, the plane, the bombers are always going over. The plane's going over. No guns went off, though. No. Listen to the first episode of Something Wicked. You'll get some good context there. Or listen to any of, uh, we did one with Andrew Henry that's got some good, we've discussed Bradbury quite a bit. At length. At length, that's right. And you should go back and listen to the back catalog. Yeah, yeah. N- nothing better than the Booking Back catalog. It's That's right. A great catalog of stuff. Uh, I guess lo- the only thing worth noting is this is his first novel. Yes. It's yes. early Written in his... Written on those famous typewriters at UCLA or wherever. That's right, yeah. And we talked about that in the mm-hmm. context, and I keep reminding myself that the, this is his first novel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth remembering. When I remember the first things I wrote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, he would have been what, like in his early 20s or something? Yeah, he's young. He wrote so. this. Yeah, anyway, the planes just went over, and that means we have to do baggage, which I think we also did probably mentioned our thoughts on this book before in those Bradbury episodes. But sure. Jake, what baggage did you bring to this book? I think I've only read this book once before. I don't remember reading it in high school. If I was assigned in high school, it would have been the kind of book I would have skipped. Mm-hmm. Back probably now... 10-ish years ago, I would have been commuting a lot between Bloomington and Indianapolis, about an hour drive. And uh, my wife would go to the public library for me and get me books on CD. And uh, this was one of those books. And I really did not like it at all back then. Do you remember why you didn't like it back then? Well, yeah, it was just clunky and really on the nose and just badly written. The kind of book that hung around because it had a point to make, not because it had a a good story to tell or a good way of say, uh, of making that point. And that was your primary impression of Bradbury until earlier this year or last year, I guess, we did Something Wicked This Way Comes, correct? That's right. And I think I may have said then, especially maybe I said this when we talked to, talked with Andrew Henry, I did remember reading and being moved by some of Bradbury's short stories mm-hmm. in high school. Yes. But yeah, I... I really enjoyed Something Wicked This Way Comes a whole lot. Just a few months ago when we did it, yeah. Yeah, People yeah. can go back and listen to those episodes, but yeah. Yeah, so I didn't know what I was going to get when I came to this book, but I did feel like I was coming maybe a little better prepared in terms of knowing what I was dealing with with Bradbury. And also, I don't know, I think I came pretty open-minded knowing just a little bit more about his style and understanding it better for one. And two, also, I think recognizing... The, the audiobook version of this that I listened to, I don't remember anything about it, but I know it's from the public library. So it's probably a fairly decent reading. Mm-hmm. But just knowing, having listened to a lot more audiobooks now, mm-hmm. how much a reader can color your take on a book. And this would be, this. I don't know that Bradbury in particular not probably the, He's not the author that you to, want an audiobook. Yeah. And I mean, well, I'm sure that we'll get into this in the discussion. Like the very places he's weak are the very places that are just going to make an audiobook sound, make him sound that much yeah. more ridiculous. I mean, he's, he, well, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but he's bad on dialogue. And just exactly. his, writing, his writing style is very Baroque, overwrought. It's You'd have to be, you could probably find someone that could do it justice really well, but it would have to be a very specific kind of a performance. Well, even to bring if he gave life. justice to a line like the, 12 line sentence that you just read mm-hmm. there's not much you can do with the dialogue yeah yeah <laughs> at least in certain points where it's just really <clears throat> wooden or stilted or wonky i would Unnatural, think that the, the way like, to read this book would be to get somebody i don't know who like stephen wright maybe somebody that, a comedian <laughs> well that's that's a silly example but someone to underplay it just play it straight because anyone that gives this book any energy is just going to make it seem kind of hyperbolic because it's already Mm -hmm. kind of on the edge of self-parody. Well, it's trying. Yeah. It's trying. There are some books that are meant to be read aloud and you feel it and you almost want to read them aloud. We'll do one next month in Homer's Odyssey. Mm -hmm. We did one in Seamus Haney's uh, Beowulf. Beowulf. Mm -hmm. But this is definitely just for the person who is, who's sitting alone reading quietly to themselves, and Bradbury's trying to do all the work for you. 
Well, and also I just think because it's a book about books and it has all this stuff about how great books are and the binding of books and the smell of books, you Mm kind of want to be reading it in a book and be smelling that smell and turning those pages and having that tactile experience because it it, it actually does detract maybe more for this book than many a book. It detracts to to have it read to you because it's really a book about the mystic power of books. Yeah, so I guess the the long and short of it is I came – to this reading as a Bradbury sympathizer, understanding more of his weaknesses and his strengths, but having really not liked the book the first go around. Well, we'll come back and find out how your feelings changed or perhaps didn't change. But Brandon, what baggage did you bring to this thing? So, spear days and days gone by <laughs> had courage and greatness. They did, they did. Yeah. I had to get that out, sorry. I was just like right there. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no reason anyone could bring <clears> up <throat> Shane Machini without... Yeah, I'm sure everyone was feeling the same way. <laughs> yeah. Demands being read aloud. Demands it. Yeah, yeah. My baggage. <laughs> yes, your baggage. Yes, I had actually never read any Bradbury until I moved to Bloomington. A mutual friend of all of ours recommended this book very highly, and so I went and read it. Mm-hmm. And at that point in my life, this will be actually part of the narrative that we get in. Narrative. Yeah, whatever. This will be a part of the narrative. Mm-hmm. I'll just lean into that yeah, word. Narrative. The narrative. Mm-hmm. I hate that word. It's largely just because of its misuse. It's yeah, not like it's a bad we, word. We've all got a personal narrative, Brandon. And yeah, you're see, that's that's the narrative. problem right there. So what's another word I could use, Jake? Help me out. Story? Story. Yeah, the story. Yeah, there you go. That's part of my story, is I had never read Bradbury, came up here, mutual friend recommended it, I read it. Where I was at that point in my life, I was still much more snobbish than I am today, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. To people who have listened to the Ready Player One episodes... I used to be much more snobbish. Yeah, this is this is like nice, Brandon, on Ready Player One. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with where I am now. I don't ever see myself coming to terms with Ready Player One, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I'm right. <laughs> Ready Player so, One. So Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> or baggage or whatever. Baggage. Yes. So you were a young man. You're young man. I didn't care along. for it. Yeah, you didn't care for it. What I didn't care for was, like Jake said, the overwrought language, the story that didn't seem to work. It was just a parable without having much of a story to tell. What I Everybody knows where I came from. I don't need to drag up the old names we always drag up, but I love character. I love story. And neither of these things were a strong suit mm-hmm. of Bradbury's. I loved good dialogue, and he's very, very weak in the dialogue. I'd yeah. say that's where he is weakest, is his yeah. dialogue. The mechanical Hound really threw me off. <laughs> I just thought that that was really silly. Yeah, I wasn't buying into the world. Fast forward a few years, we read Something Wicked This Way Comes. I fall in love with Brad Berry. I see really what is fantastic about him. He's very much Dickensian in what he does, mm-hmm. and I'm sympathetic to Dickens. Right. And so where am I out now? I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I guess we will. Let's keep the people in suspense here. Yeah. I have a somewhat similar trajectory. I remember my mom really loving Fahrenheit 451. I remember it being around the house a lot in a cheap old paperback version and me being encouraged by various educators and parental figures and authority figures and people, hey, you should read this book. And uh, when anytime something like that happens, I'm enough of a rebel without a cause or whatever that I wasn't really, I assumed it would probably just be something dumb that I wouldn't like. Eventually, Fahrenheit, or no, Something Wicked This Way Comes ended up at my house, and I read that, and I was like, oh, this is great. This is horror. This is awesome. It's a creepy carnival. It's my kind of thing. And then I went back and read a bunch of old Bradbury stories in a collection called The October Country, which I really think is a great collection to this day. Uh, Lots of creepy, spooky stories. There's one called The Jar about a man that buys off of a carnival something in the jar, and we have to try and figure out what's in the jar. And then there's one called The Small Assassin about a little, a mom who 
has a baby and then she decides that the baby is trying to kill her and the baby's crawling around with a scalpel at the end or something like that. It's really over the top and fun and creepy and uh, no one will believe the mother and all that kind of good stuff. So I ended up liking the kind of pulpy side of Bradbury and then I came back around and tried Fahrenheit 451 as a teenager and I think I probably thought it was fine but it was definitely my least favorite Bradbury and I had a lot of the same problems with it that you guys are describing. There's just especially the section just at the very beginning you get hit with all this weird stuff the Clarice character is just like ugh. I mean just such a what do they call them pixie manic dream girls or whatever I think is what the, the internet likes to call these kinds of characters just the, mm-hmm. the female the crazy kind of carefree female that's going to solve all your problems as a male by being free of spirit and all that kind of stuff that was obnoxious I mean not that I think I'm pretty famous for not being any kind of a feminist but that's just bad writing for bad kind of wish fulfillment male writing that I don't like the section where they're pumping out his wife's stomach Mildred Mildred. Mildred. and it's just like the snake with the head of a badger in the dragon went down the, the cavern of her stomach and it's just like the most pathetic style ever and I remember really sneering (laughs) at that whole section and actually I will say Mr. Uh, Neil Gaiman or Gaiman or whatever wrote the introduction to our copy that we read for this reading and he really helped I think because he talks about how this is a retro future written by someone in the 1950s and he just points out how everything is kind of the way that someone in the 1950s would ex- would expect the future to be so he still thinks of criminals Ray Bradbury is still imagining criminals being <coughs> chased by hounds and so he comes up with what's the sci-fi version of that oh it's a mechanical hound which makes a whole heck of a lot more sense when yeah, you think about it I that way yeah i had the same or the introduction beforehand too and it really did soften me up i think mm-hmm. i did not read the, the introduction you probably should have read the introduction. It actually does help. I, don't oh. know. I mean, it's just just having Gaiman. I mean, it's nothing that you if you did if you didn't if you stop to think about it. Sure. Right. But he just makes you stop and think about mm-hmm. the fact that he's inventing a future based on what he knew from the 1950s. Wow. So Mildred and, is a takeoff. She's a future. She's someone. She's someone looking at the 1950s housewife type person, and then yeah. thinking, "What's that person going to be like yeah. in the future?" Uh, she, Mildred suddenly makes a lot more sense that way. All I the females that. make more sense that way, and the everything makes a lot the more mechanical sense. hound. The way that his boss treats him, just everything. Hey. If you kind of filter it through a retro future kind of thing. No spoilers, but I may be right on board with that. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> well, hey, should we just spoil it? Spoiler it now? Yeah, I like this book a lot better than I did the first time. Okay. Yeah, same. Yeah, I'm more, I think it's two reasons. One, I was more sympathetic to his style because I had already read Something Wicked This Way Comes. Mm. Second reason, because of a lot of the stuff we've done in the booking, the booking has actually helped me this way. Yeah. I was much more sympathetic to this being his first novel mm-hmm. and the struggles that must be for him. Yeah. Comparing it to something like The Dubliners and mm-hmm. thinking about the success this was compared to The Dubliners. And I do think that there's a big difference in what the success is, so yeah. why this is successful, why I would recommend, like my son Elliot, read this book over yeah. Dubliners. You know, when I, when I finished, I had the same thought of, you know, I just don't have any real hesitations about my kids reading Bradbury mm-hmm. yeah. and reading them from a pretty reading it from a pretty young age as soon as he can handle keeping up with the with the with the with the language with the vocabulary yeah yeah I just don't have any he's a fun engaging writer yep. 
and um, not a terrible moralist, as, yeah, it, as it turns yeah. out. Well, this is this is the right up a young person's alley who's trying to their tastes when they're they're learning to love character, mm-hmm. but mainly they're learning to love plot. Mm-hmm. And so, why not have a plot that also is tied to some sort of thinking about mm-hmm. an issue? Yeah, right. Because sure. it's teaching them to at least engage with the plot, as yeah. opposed to just it's like what we were tiptoeing or trying to come to terms with in the trial episode. Mm-hmm. But you want a plot that either serves you or you want a plot that forces you to do something, mm-hmm. right? And this is the sort of plot that forces you to at least do something, Yeah, right? You have to think. If you're going to engage with this plot, you have to think. And I think that's why this book has become as popular as it was because it's an easy book to teach, right? Right. You teach it to a bunch of students, you have a whole lot of things to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the perfect age for it. And so, I mean... I'll probably go home and I'll give this to Alyssa to read. Yeah, it's a it's a good book. I'm glad I read it as a kid. It's fun to think about the things, and it's nice that he makes them so clear. I mean, it really is just a parable, and maybe that's right. the best way to think about it. And parables are often best told in a shorter format than a novel. Yeah, he's straining he, here to make he this He started work. out with a short story called, what, The Firemen or The Firefighter? I think it was called, the, yeah, The Firemen maybe. but Something like um, that. And it does feel at times like... And we were talking about this beforehand, but it does feel at times like this may have actually been a better short story than a novel. Well, I think it's, it's not a long novel. It's 150 no. pages. Yeah. I would say, I don't know, maybe this is a snotty thing to say, but it seems to me the reason this book has held on in the popular imagination is because it's a tribute to the power of a great idea. Like mm-hmm. this book has such a compelling hook that people will read it forever, but is it actually like a really great, well-written novel? No, not yeah, really. Yeah, well, see, and that's what it's we not, talked about with yeah. Bradbury before is that he's more of an ideas guy than he is a great writer. Yeah. And he's so excited to give you his idea that you just sort of want to buy in mm-hmm. and are willing to forgive a whole lot because you want to know what his great I- idea is. It's a lot like, reminds me of what we were what we talked about with, with Steinbeck sitting down at the feet of grandpa john Mm -hmm. because he's really excited to tell you a story yeah and bradbury is always really excited to tell you a story and you forgive like when you're sitting down by the fireside with grandpa john who's a storyteller you've got the the magic of the darkness and the magic of the fire and the magic of the rocking chair and all this other stuff that helps you forgive the fact that grandpa may not be speaking in complete sentences right, or whatever, right. whatever whatever it is. Yeah. The same kind of, Bradbury's often able to cast a similar kind of spell. This is his first go at it, and he's not as successful as he is in other places. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think something wicked this way comes just really is where his... It converges. It all converges, yeah. yeah. The, his art yeah. and his maturity and his, his slap-happy desire to just tell a story all kind of meet and, 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 and something kind of magical yeah, ends up and happening. It's, it's a beautiful book. I love everything yeah, about that. But yeah. this book's not there, I'm afraid. No. And I know there's you, people you, that really love it that will be offended at us even being that critical of it. But yeah. um, can I can I also just say that he also, in general, as an author, makes me think of Joe Bailey. Um, well, Joe Bailey was a, a writer. He's actually the father of our pastor, Tim Bailey, who you may know from other principally, podcasts. Principally an essayist, mm. a magazine essayist, an editor, who also wrote a number of short stories and parables and one longish sort of parable called The Gospel Blimp that sold a lot of copies. The writing is not good. The dialogue's pretty hokey, but the idea, he had an idea. Is, is really compelling. They're from this similar era and they're cut from a similar cloth. Yeah, there's a certain kind of stolid, manly sort of 1950s morality at play in both those men, actually. Yeah. But even Brad Bradbury, who's not a Christian, as far as I know, there's just kind of a decent what you associate with that era, just sort yeah. of, you no, know. you're right, yeah. 
Um, That's interesting. Parable is manliness. Yeah. I don't know what to say about it, but... At least making a point as mm-hmm. manliness. Yeah. There's a certain lack of preciousness yeah. in both of them. I do think of it as a manful... Yeah, Bradbury doesn't really care what you think. I mean, he's right. just having fun telling the story. He's telling story, you his story. And he thinks it's worthwhile. He... He's not apologetic about it. Huh. He's not huh. careful. You, you say he's generous. That's the word that you like to use for him. Mm. And I think that it's as much careless in a manfully plowing ahead and telling not the story. Not self-aware kind of, in the best sense yes, of not, those words. Not like, self-aware. Not self-conscious. Like so many people are self-conscious and they're just like, what will people think of me? And what will... Bradbury's just like... And so self-aware as to be self-absorbed. And you know, you see it reflected in the neat perfection of Hemingway or... Joyce. Joyce. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this is... It's, this is the opposite of that. So we've put Absolute people into camps opposite. before, and mm-hmm. it's interesting because I'm automatically thinking like Chesterton would fall into this camp. Sure. sure. Or Dickens. Dickens, definitely. Yeah. You know who else falls into this camp would be Shakespeare. Yeah. Because <laughs> when you read a Shakespeare play, there's nothing wilder and stranger in the whole world mm-hmm. than reading a Shakespeare play. Yeah. He just so happened to have the genius to make it all come together. Yeah. But Bradbury and Shakespeare have similarities, mm-hmm. as weird as it is to say that. I think Bradbury, I would say that Bradbury has more in common with Shakespeare than Joyce does. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's completely true. And Bradbury, what's that? <laughs> Too bold. I'm trying. I'm trying to not chafe at that. Oh, I don't have any problem. Just with the it. command. Uh, no, I agree with the sentiment for sure. But command of language. Command of language is where Bradbury was lacking, and Bradbury had to learn. Well, right. and that's why we hate right. Joyce, because Joyce had more talent in his pinky than Bradbury ever had in his whole body in terms of just being And no to willingness to forget himself and just serve others yeah. and serve a story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's why Joyce is so hateful. I mean, Joyce, there's no question that Joyce is a more talented man than Bradbury. I mean, and that's not to say that careful craft can't be in that first category. Sure. I would actually say Seamus Heaney falls into that category, mm-hmm. but he's very, very careful with his craft. Mm-hmm. That's just because he's very concerned about the weight of each word against each word, each other and stuff like that. The difference would be, T.S. Eliot would be more in the James Joyce, except in Possum's Book of Practical Gads. <laughs> Memory. No, stop. All alone <laughs> I, in the moonlight. <laughs> uh, the point being, it's fun to see when an author comes out and is just, actually later Christian T.S. Eliot is very much that way. His plays and stuff. Mm-hmm. are playful in a way that his earlier poetry is not. Yeah, you know, that's another knock against old Clive Staples because he got more careful and he became better in some ways as he got older, but he also got weirder and worse. Yeah, worse. So. And the only th- the stuff worth remembering with him is like the Narnia trilogy. Yeah, kind Narnia of mid-career. But, uh, but C.S. Lewis is great, whatever. Let's not talk about him. Acoustic Dylan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Acoustic Dylan, yes. Well, although yeah. newly plugged in Dylan is actually some of my favorite Dylan, so. Sure. Like modern times. But then there's Christian Dylan and post-Christian Dylan. Yeah. My favorite's always going to be early Acoustic Dylan. Yeah, probably. That's what moves me the most, mm. but, huh. Well, so then to bring this back to Bradbury, yeah. that's what fascinated me about this book. I approached it expecting to still not like it, and I was actually kind of, I was charmed by him. I was too. I was too. I enjoyed it just on the level of a evening right yeah. before bed read. It's a good parable. What I would say is weak about it. Like the first time I read it, all that stuff, all the kind of metaphors and stuff really bugged me because I may, I think I was just being a snob. But That's right. what I suspected myself too, is that I was just much more of a snob oh, the well, first time. It's just, I thought you couldn't just say tube. You had to say it was a snake winding. Come on. But this time, none of that bothered me. 
reclaiming and coming back to something wicked certainly helped with that too realizing that i actually still loved something about this guy i actually think the booking helps i mean not to be not to pat ourselves on the back too much but i think if i'd read this book before we started the booking like the same year i don't know whether i would have liked it but having had to process through all these things like east of eden and certain books with you guys i think it's given me an appreciation for people who are imperfect yeah in a it's, way, I think it's given me a right perspective of more sympathy to the author, more love of just story. Yeah. Still a real appreciation of high craft, but with it has to have the right mixture because if you just have high craft, you just have snobbishness. Mm-hmm. That's and I true. remember back yeah. when I was the kind of guy who would pretend to like Dubliners mm-hmm. or pretend to really love the wasteland. And, you know, that's the guy who then turned to this and really didn't like it. Yeah. I think what we found ourselves doing is really prioritizing story and characterization mm-hmm. above style. Yeah. And it's changed the way that I've I've read and looked at books in, in, in I think, a healthy way. Yeah, same here. I could still, a good turn of phrase makes me, is like crack. I mean, it's it can still well, sure. make me gleeful and I never want that to change about myself. Well, we're but. always going to say that the, the very best of the best authors are going to be the people who can bring that style and substance together, the mm-hmm. story and the characterization together with tremendous style. We've spent our time knocking stylists who have nothing to say or crap to say down. That's all we've done on this show. And and cutting a lot of slack to people who have a good story to tell and maybe really stink at telling it. Well, man, I mean, Steinbeck is hammy as as I'll get out in some places. Well, Bradbury's the worst. Although we did cut Stoker some slack and he's (laughs) a thousand times worse than... The thing about Bradbury that's different than someone like Stoker, to defend him a little bit, I actually do non-sarcastically. I don't know how it came off when I read that sentence when we started the podcast. I love that sentence. I like that Bradbury swings for the fences. He's capable of doing gems. He's got a much higher batting average in something in something wicked in some of his later work than he does here. He's going to still hit a home run. Yeah, he does hit he's gonna home show, runs. He's going to show he's got the ability to hit that long ball. He yeah. just strikes out more. Yeah. And I like, just think, I bet you a million dollars, if you pointed out some of the flaws to Bradbury about this book, he'd he, agree with he'd you. just laugh and say, oh yeah, I was young. Okay, so we like this book. I will say in terms of what I found myself not liking this time around, where it really fell short for me and where I think Bradbury improved a lot by the time he wrote, maybe 10, 12, 15 years later when he wrote Something Wicked, is the characterization is is that what's actually bugs me about this book. I don't the, think that there's anything you could say about the book that I, like if you isolate it, that I would say, I like it. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's one thing that you could pull out and say, well, do you like this? Do you like this? Do you like yeah. this? I, I would say no to everything that you said. And yet somehow I enjoyed reading it and I'm okay with it as a book. I, I mostly am too. I would weird? just say, I don't think that that's weird. I think maybe this is a hackneyed way of talking about it, but you should kind of just have a natural storyteller who's just cheerfully pulling you through it with spit and polish and pure sort of storytelling moxie. He's just gonna, he, he pulls it off somehow because he actually is that, he actually does have that certain je ne sais quoi that yeah. it's what people always say about Stephen King. He might not be good at anything, but he's good at making you turn those pages. But there's something about him that's better than just someone who makes you turn the pages. Yeah, I think so. Just like there's something better about King, because mm-hmm. King and Bradbury are, are similar, and they're both better than Ernest Cline. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. I turned those pages with Ernest Cline. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, is I turned the pages with Ernest Cline, and yet all my old uh, arguments against Cline aside, I think without... What was a nail <laughs> on the ground right beside me. I don't know. Throw the second nail. Are you throwing these? I'm not throwing anything, dude. Are there two? Yeah. 
Are they falling? I hope the church doesn't collapse on us. That's bizarre. Maybe they were in this. I don't think we're going to solve the mystery. I think we're just going to have to live in. To have that exciting. That's like a Bradburyan thing. Yeah. All right, so if people are listening, nails apparated and dropped to the ground next to Brandon's chair. Yeah. Like, I think this is the beginning of a Bradbury story. Brandon's just going to have these random nails drop out it of the It is ground. something out of a weird, creepy... Yeah. I don't know what to do about this, guys. I need to go home and think about this. This is the second time something creepy is happening. It's the curse of the bookening. What There's happened? absolutely nothing... That it could have fallen, it could have fallen out of the vent. Yeah, we're under tiles right now. We're under ceiling tiles, but the vent is far enough away from you that I can't see them landing. Where? Well, and they didn't drop. I mean, we kind of saw, we didn't see them exactly, but I got the sense that they just came from Brandon's shoulder height, hit the carpet. The only explanation is somehow they were on me, and I just didn't realize it. In a pocket or something like that. That's just got to be. That's got. Yeah, that's the answer. Sure. What were we talking about? Oh, Jake was saying that. Everything about this book sucks, but it still kind of works. Point oh, but, oh, that's but Ernest Klein is a page turner too. Mm. So what's the difference? I don't know. Maturity, moral sense. Do we have to spend a lot of time on this? No. Bradbury's just better. But there's you, definitely. You want to play the devil's advocate on this? You can for fun if you want. Um, I think there's. I think there's a pretty clear qual- qualitative yeah. difference here. If I'm playing the devil's advocate, I say they both entertain you and turn the pages and they don't actually leave you with anything good. To, they don't have anything to say. Bradbury says books are great. And Ernest Klein says, okay. <laughs> There's the problem right there. What does Ernest Klein say? <laughs> well, and I say a pox upon you, devil. Bradbury loves something. And Ernest Klein, I know devil, you'll say Ernest Klein loves 80s pop culture, but come on. Bradbury actually has a real adult, mature love of something and understanding of how something in life works. Yes. And that's the point that it's hard to make with people, Mm -hmm. but I wholeheartedly embrace is that there is a maturity to taste and a maturity to an understanding of just appreciating story and what literature is doing that you don't have with Klein, but you do have with Bradbury. Well, you're a snob, Brad. Well, another... Well, that's what that's the argument, but guess what? If that makes me a snob, if, if liking Fahrenheit 451 makes me a snob... <laughs> <laughs> it's a very strange yeah. universe we live in, but... Well, I think what Madeline Lingle would have done with this book, think of the references to what The Tempest and okay. Jesus and Buddha and... And think of how she would then tell you what the references were and make sure you got how brilliant she would be, she was being, and make sure you... none of that pretension in this book, and there's all kinds of opportunity Mm -hmm. for it. I was waiting for it. This book doesn't really suck up to you or validate you. You don't end up... Bradbury himself actually said that this was not a book about government oppression or Big Brother. He said it was more about Little Sister, which I think was his way of saying this book is about how we all just don't want to read how we all turn a blind eye. It's not about the big boogeyman. You know, it's not 1984. It's not, he did not see it in line with the other great dystopian novels. In terms of dystopian novels, it'd be more in line with Brave New World, Brave New World than it would be with 1984. Mm. Which to be fair, I actually think this is better than Brave New World. I've not read Brave New World. I did, but it was high school, so I can't say. I'm not a big fan of Brave New World. It's sort of a cross, isn't it? If you're thinking of just human nature sorts of, things you know orwell is the government is keeping you down brave new world is nobody cares right well yeah and this is we're all complicit in this conspiracy and that is a more yeah i mean i'm probably oversimplifying both of those books you're definitely oversimplifying but it's fine it's it's but the big speech is it beady or Beatty? 
Who? Beatty? Yeah, Beatty. The, the chief. He's the most yeah. interesting character. I well, think. the whole scene where he comes to visit gives the history of Is the able to pull up those random quotes. Yeah. I think Beatty, he's, he's fascinating, but he's so in, yeah. two points there. One, you can always tell where Bradbury is invested with his philosophy because mm-hmm. he gives those speeches to people. Yeah. And the speeches oh. work as far as dialogue. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm thinking of Charles and yeah. his speech. And then uh, Beatty's speech here. It, it works. It's interesting. It, it's engaging. Yeah. But his point is what you were saying that people, I don't know that anyone actually talks that way. But no, yes, it's, but it's, still, it's, it's fascinating to read. To read. Yeah. It's like an essay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting to see what the HBO series does with that sort of thing. Yeah. But to the point that, um, yeah, we've all are complicit in it. We want the entertainment, and so we would rather see what's the new Jurassic Park movie. <laughs> Jurassic Park: Fallen World. Yeah, Fallen we get, Kingdom. We would Kingdom, rather yeah. we would rather get excited about Jurassic Park: Fallen Kingdom than reading. I'll go back to my old fallback: uh, War and Peace. <laughs> Good old Tolstoy. Yeah. Right. And so that's his point here is that we give ourselves to those things. So we become complicit in our own destruction. It's interesting then that he also says the things that we get to keep are the sex books mm-hmm. and comic books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think he's got, maybe when you start comparing him to all the other quote unquote great dystopian people, you know, 1984, Brave New World, whatever. What's interesting about Bradbury, I think, and what lends him an additional air of credibility and perhaps of maturity is I think he's got hope. I mean, even his worst characters, Beatty, the fire chief, we get a weird kind of, we don't know whether he's not just a secret reader and just suicidal at the end. Right. Um, the wife, as dumb, given over as to entertainment as she is, he gives her that beautiful sentence that I read at the end where in the millisecond before she dies, she sees the emptiness of her life and is horrified by it. And I find that to be very moving. When you come to the commune of hobos, who are living books or whatever, you have almost this sort of like view of things that things are terrible, but things run their course and we're moving forward ultimately. And actually things might get better quickly because the bad dystopian city gets blown all to hell. And we're here and we've got the books and we've got the knowledge and we can build on what came before us. And in a a depressing dystopian novel, they walk away from the city. In this novel, they walk towards the city. We're going to help out. We're going to do what we can to share with people, to share our knowledge, to rebuild civilization. I mean, it's a pretty hopeful ending. I think it's, yeah, he really does have hope. He does have a sort of onward and upward and that was the same thing that we've all responded to, I think, about as, as cheesy as it could be even there in Something Wicked This Way Comes. Sometimes death you, by love. Death, death by, by love. hugging. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to hug a bad guy to death, you know? Yeah. I don't know. What else is there to say about this? Like I was saying, I had trouble with so, just not so much the broad characterization. Like Beatty was an interest. All the characters were interesting and I liked where they landed. But just uh, Raymond Chandler early on said he had trouble keeping characters alive when they were in a room, like he said, I can't keep more than two people alive in a room just because I'm a young, immature writer. And that's kind of how I felt about Bradbury. Like he just has trouble with keeping all the plates spinning in terms of like, how would three people in a room behave? That's interesting. There's just some kind of cheap, like the scene where Mildred is discovering the book under his pillow. It's just like, feels like something that a high schooler would write where they think this is how human beings would react. It's like, no, no one would, you're all behaving like weird automatons here. Nobody, all three characters are, I get the bigger picture of how, you know, Beatty doesn't want to see and the wife is whatever. And Montag, you know, it all kind of makes sense on a philosophical level, but then on a, just like a, do human beings actually 
do these actions level. It doesn't doesn't actually work. Yeah, it doesn't quite yeah, work. He's yeah. immature. Yeah. And I think that's I keep coming back to the he was immature. So I'm mm-hmm. willing to forgive him some. But I never I never thought about that before. That's interesting. About an author's ability to keep characters alive in a room together. Yeah. Think mm-hmm. about how masterful Austin and Tolstoy. Well Tolstoy oh, especially. Tolstoy can do those big party scenes. Yeah, you can have like a big nobody, ball. Yeah. The opening to uh, War and Peace is a big soiree party mm-hmm. where Pierre comes into this party and it's just like you get introduced to twenty characters. And they all seem alive, and he seems to know where everybody is and how they're going to interact. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he actually describes in that scene, he describes a hostess, and he says her ability as a hostess was such that she would go from person to person and, like a plate spinner, she, would, right. keep, she would spin a plate here and spin a plate there, and she kept all the plates spinning relationally. I think Tolstoy is actually describing himself there. That's what he does. He knows how to keep all the plates spinning in a scene. And if you've ever tried to write, or if you've ever read bad writing by a high schooler in particular, or by my, you know, my bad writing in high school, it's hard to do. It's hard to just keep two characters or three characters alive. Why isn't this guy talking? Well, you know, oh, he must be lighting a cigarette. You know, you'll see immature writers come up with all kinds of things. It's actually much harder. Writing's hard. That's, I guess, all I'm trying to say. I don't it know. It is. A difficult craft. And- mm-hmm. Not everybody's E.B. White. No. And to be fair, E.B. White waited until he was a bit older to write his first novels. And his novels are, his first one's about a mouse who yep. only ever talks to one other person, really. And is born of a woman, I guess? That or? changes. That I, changed in I the I think Jake yeah. made the point. That, yeah. Yeah. He followed the advice and edited that. Though, the barn seems alive in Charlotte's Web. Yeah. So he does learn to master that craft, too. Yeah, you feel like the sheep and everybody just, yeah. Yeah. Jake, would you give the BSOA to Fahrenheit 451? Qualified. My qualification would be there are lots and lots and lots of other books that are more worth your time. Including by Mr. Raymond Bradbury himself, I would say. Yeah. I'm more inclined to give this book a pass than I am a seal of approval. Yeah. I know what you mean. I don't love it. I don't know. I'll ask Brandon first. Brandon? I'll give it a qualified seal of approval. Qualified seal of approval. Because I'm thinking... uh, for a young person to read this book and to have the excitement at the end of... You know, what I just think about Bradbury is that he's... We've talked off and on, and we talked in our Charlotte's Web stuff about the idea of young adult fiction and that yeah. hitting that 12 to 14 mm-hmm. range or whatever. But I really think of Bradbury as really great young adult fiction. Like when I, re- I read this book, I thought, oh, yeah. In a year or two, I'll be excited to give this book to Peter, even though I don't think it's the greatest book ever. Like, I think Bradbury's just good for, because he's imaginative and he's colorful and colorful and he's, yeah, vivid. He's a great storyteller. He's exciting. He's got good ideas. The ideas are challenging and uh, they're not challenging if you've hit these tropes before, but when I think of who, where do I want these kids, my kids, to first encounter these kinds of tropes? I don't know they could do better than Bradbury. Yeah, and no. so I just keep. Yeah. I think of he's kind of a great young adult writer. Yeah, if if you really like stories that are more parable driven than they are, than character driven and stuff like that, and this is good. And I think for young people who are learning fiction, mm-hmm. this is a great place to start because. Yeah. It's kind of all on the table. It's very clear. The characters are one-dimensional, but at least he has characters. The, the, it has a point to the story, which mm-hmm. is better than a lot of the crap. And only one read. point, and I think that may be part of it, yeah. mm-hmm. is like in everything by Bradbury, he's got one idea and one point, and there's not the sophistication. Like for somebody who is growing into the idea that stories have a point, mm-hmm. 
And out of fairy tale and stuff. Out of fairy tales into stories having a point. This sort of parable, I have one big idea and one big point, is a really nice stepping stone to my mind on the way to the more, much more complex uh, stories. And not that I want to hold back somebody who's 12 or 14 who can handle Austin or Dickens or whatever from Austin or Dickens or Twain or whoever else. I loved these books when I was, I I loved all of Ray Bradbury when I was about 14. And I just, I wouldn't begrudge any 14. If I had a 14 year old kid, I would give them Ray Bradbury and unqualified seal of approval for them at least. I think. Yeah, I can see this being a, this is a good stepping stone for Dickens. Mm-hmm. And that's who why, is then a good stepping stone for Austin and Tolstoy. Sure. Yeah, and I think that that's probably why I I sneered at this book when I was 22 or whatever reading it. Because you were immature and weren't okay with something being for not for you. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't okay with how sim- simple and simplistic it was. I was well, I wanted something meatier and whatever, and it felt immature. But I was. Yeah. I think I can look now and say, well, maybe I was just the immature yeah. one. This this might be a nasty <laughs> thought, but what I abominate is is the idea that because something, oh, how to say this right? Here's the thing. People, there's a certain kind of reader who, because they had a great time riding their tricycle, they want to pretend like a tricycle is the ultimate mode of transportation for the rest of their life. And, and they will just tell, and if you try to say, hey, why not try a bike? Why not try a motorcycle? Why not take an airplane? They'll say, no, a tricycle. Tricycles are great. And it's like, no, part of maturity is growing out of things. And yep. I just abominate the idea that, and this is why I think I've had a chip on my shoulder about this book. And I'm glad that uh, we've all sort of matured out of having to have a chip on it. And I don't want to. It's a good book, basically. But it is a book for a younger kind of a person. It is an immature book in a certain ways. It's, it's hop- just a tricycle. It's just a tricycles tricycle. Tricycles are good for what tricycles are good for, yeah. which is a stepping stone for a toddler. And, and the people that are bike. listening to this podcast, yes. I know they're out there and I don't want to lose supporters or anything, but there's people that will listen to this and be offended that we didn't just you know put it on the same pane with Shakespeare. And it's like, no, Shakespeare built automobiles. This is a tricycle. And that's okay. It's, it's a, okay it's for things to be tricycle. tricycle. It's a nice, fantastic well tricycle. It's a great tricycle. It's it a tricycle. It's a tricycle among tricycles. It's the Daisy Bibigan of yeah. tricycles. It's a golden tricycle. <laughs> all kinds of, <laughs> all the metaphors, man. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Let's make this as Bradbury-esque as we can. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure to ride this tricycle. Uh, you know, but eventually it's got to be a pleasure to watch it burn. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, no, what? that's wrong. That's, that's wrong. That's what we thought a couple of years ago. You need a fireman. Uh, <laughs> no, it's got to be a pleasure to watch your children learn to love it while you go and love better things. And that's what's, the, and that is, I keep stressing this point because I see it happen all the time. This is really where it gets offensive and, and difficult because it talking about maturity with art mm-hmm. and entertainment, I think, and it has especially to do with America, with our equality mm-hmm. ideas. People don't want to think that your tastes and your opinions about art are the same as your opinions about like morals and ethics, mm-hmm. that they should grow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they should. There yeah. should be a time when you grow out of, like hopefully Bradbury is a step out of you liking Ernest Klein. <laughs> yeah. 
right, Ernest? Because Bradbury shows you who, which of you made the point that I think it was you that Bradbury is actually has a point. That's what just silenced the devil completely, mm. right? Well, I think the devil actually the devil made the point himself. Made the point the himself on of, accident. Went, Oops. Yeah. <laughs> he was Walked, the devil thought he could BS a point about from Ready Player One, and he, he came up towel. empty. Yeah. And, yeah. He's just like, wait a second. <laughs> he just proved why. He just proved the point that there is a maturing that happens. But you got to imagine that there's a maturing that happens after Bradbury too, right? And the maturing is you step out of Bradbury and then you read David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. Then you mature, you read David Copperfield, and then you say, "Well, that's great." You read Huckleberry Finn, you know, and then you're like, "Wow, that's fantastic!" And then you read Austin and Tolstoy and Shakespeare, right? You know? well, I mean, look, as, as as parents, you guys want your children to outgrow you. You want them to reach the point where they don't need you, and you will be sad when that happens. But that's what you want. And I think Ray Bradbury, probably, he seems like a humble, cool guy. He seems to me, and I could be reading into this, he seems like the kind of guy that would be happy for someone to outgrow Ray Bradbury and to discover Shakespeare or Tolstoy or, would be. or whatever it is. Because he loves those things and knows that they're great. Yeah. And he's he knows he's a stepping stone in some sense. Yeah. And the point um, that... I, was, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I think it's the right way to think of... I don't know whether he'd think about himself that way or not, no. but I think it's the right way to think of him. But there are people that go the wrong trajectory. Well, they'll prize only the point that's being made, and so then they'll end up liking Dostoevsky. Yuck. Yeah, who is just about the philosophy, and that's the pride of mind. A lot of philosophers end up liking Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, those guys, because for some reason they think Socrates is fun to read. Right. <laughs> Yuck. Yeah. But we'll get to that when we get to Homer. <laughs> Yuck. Dostoevsky is just Kierkegaard. Yeah, he's just Kierkegaard. Yeah, or Kierkegaard. That's right. As you guys. I had a professor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't. I mispronounce <laughs> things all the time. Yeah. I think most people probably say Kierkegaard. Though. I'm just going to honor my professor and stay, <laughs> stick to... I 100% believe you're right, and I 100% believe you'll never not get a funny look from anyone who's not your professor. I know, but, but I'm just going to... Yeah. Uh, he was an amazing professor, but yeah, you should you should definitely keep saying Kierkegaard. I'm I'm happy. Paul Eisenberg, shout out to good teachers. Eisenbohr. Eisenbohr. Eisen- <laughs> <laughs> That's how I say it. Uh, <laughs> but I was thinking about it the other day. Have you ever read? Have you ever read Plato and Socrates? Yeah, I've read some Plato and Socrates. So- you can't I think so. What read happens? Socrates? Can you? No, you read you Plato. Read Plato. You read yeah. Socrates through Plato. So one thing I was thinking, I was drive. I drive a lot, mm. and so I think what happens is as you mature you look back with maturity on the things you've read. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that this thinking, I, I came from a classical background. I think I should probably make that clear so people know that when I'm talking against classical stuff. There's actually, never anything when, on when the book. When Nathan being... talks about homeschooling, you have to know that he was a homeschooler. When yeah. Brandon talks about classically educated people, you have to know that Brandon was classically yeah. educated. You I mean, just everybody... have to know that. If you think that we're just a bunch of There's uh, never anything on the book and we've feel, made fun of or been snobby towards. Yeah. Or whatever. yeah. In fact, of course, I'm a public school kid. So you can right. talk about that. So for everybody who I'm not so, the one who takes to the shots that homeschoolers are classically educated. Yeah. So people, this isn't again. This isn't personal agenda against anyone. So for every, anyone who might have the classical background, just let me tell you, mm-hmm. I went to a classical school. I went to a classical high school in the basement of a lawyer in Fort Worth, where we were privately tutored by a Catholic graduate student who was writing his dissertation. There was only seven of us <laughs> where he would teach us all day long in the basement of this lawyer in Fort Worth. This works with Socrates, all the great Greek playwrights and Roman playwrights. I mean, I got like the classical education. I got classical education before it was classical education. All right, yeah. <laughs> so so there, there, those are my credentials. <laughs> so anyways, but I go back and now I listen. I, I think about the fact that he would stand up there and he would try to convince us that Plato was great. And now... 
as I look back with more maturity on it, I realize that it's kind of overrated. And Plato was a pervert Mm -hmm. who just tried to convince everybody like C.S. Lewis that pederasty was fine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as you, as you mature, so will your tastes, believe it or not. And so you will actually become more mature in what Mm -hmm. you love. And you will realize that as great as Bradbury is, there are better things to come. And it's okay to die to a thing. It's okay for a thing to be good enough to hold you in thrall for a few years and then for it to go away. It doesn't make Bradbury lesser because he can't serve you for your whole life the way that he did when you were 14. No. It, It just... It's it's called life. Things are finite. Nothing, everything's yeah. going to burn eventually, and then you'll stand before God. I mean, not to be too over the top about it, but I, I, yeah, there's yeah. a shelf life on everything. So once you just make your peace with that, then you'll be a happier person. Don't over-prioritize nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Sometimes poo has to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to go off and the little balloon spiders mm-hmm. fly away. But hey, more balloon spiders take their place. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a good ending line, probably. Everybody, the booketing was written by. I'm just going to give credit to everybody because I think this was a good episode. Maybe Jacob Mensville, Brandon Chasteen, and Nathan Alberson. That's re- reverse alphabetical order right there. Produced by Nathan Alberson, executive produced by Jacob Mensville. Blah, 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 blah. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the booketing and support us, right, Jake? Oh, yeah. What level of support do you think that people should sign up for, Jacob? Well, we've got nobody at the $100 a month uh, support level, but if you sign up for $100 a month, you just get to pick a book. Yeah. Any book for us to review. Not the Fifty Shades. You pretty much help us get to our next level, too. Yeah. $4, even a dollar a month. Every little bit helps, and you get access to great behind-the-scenes content for as little as a dollar a month. A weekly video where we do a pre-show like mm-hmm. we did today. Yeah. We're really good about doing that before the, the thing. And, yeah. Um, like we aired this past week. Yep. Yep. Okay, <laughs> well, sometimes we sometimes we, we fail. Well, we, we aired one this week. We, we look, did? We're not I didn't perfect. see it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're not perfect, folks. I know the Mysterious Phantom promised a show behind the paywall, and that still hasn't happened, but it will. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The Mysterious Phantom's going to have a show behind the paywall soon. I tell you what, y'all get us up to $500 a month, and the Mysterious... I will personally guarantee if the Phantom that hasn't had a show behind the paywall by the time we hit $500 a month, we hit $500 a month, the Phantom will have a, buy, a behind the paywall show. I think that that's fair. And we only have $120 a month to go, guys. I've never met this Phantom before, but I, I, I think we could probably twist his arm or something. Oh, I personally guarantee you get us up to $500 a month, we will make it happen. I think the funnest thing about the the sort of pre-show that gets gets aired is you get to see all of Brandon's massive stack of books and his things and notes books, that yeah. he, he brings for his contextual text and Brandon segment. doesn't just like, he's no slouch, man. He he comes prepared. Well, recently he just reads the author's entire... Oeuvre. 
Yeah, I'm becoming more yeah. obsessive with this. But hey, yeah, I have I've enjoyed it. No, you're well, good man. I've enjoyed we've, it. We've enjoyed you doing it. Yeah, the the public's enjoyed the it. The other thing you get is are some pretty unfiltered takes on. Yeah, if you want to know what we really think, then uh, or what we're thinking or processing about books that uh, we're reading and we've not not uh, recorded yet. Yeah, or if you just want to hear like what kind of spanking we think Charles Wallace should have gotten, <laughs> you can hear Very all about brutal. it. Oh, you just spoiled it, man. Oh, sorry. Well, they're not going to sign up. Yeah, here, okay, I'm sorry. No, with, with a feather, maybe. We don't know. You don't know. Perhaps. <laughs> or with a feather. Or a hammer. Or a, <laughs> wow. <laughs> not that brutal. <laughs> not even for Charles Wallace. Well, ben, like Brennan wants to take him into that little, uh, that little torture, torture chamber. chamber. <laughs> the torture chamber, yeah. <laughs> All right. Good night, Brandon. Good night, Nathan. Good night, Moon. <laughs> Good night, Jake. Good night, Nathan. Good night, Nathan. Good night, Nathan.